I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm joined here via Zoom by three friends, one in Chicago, USA, one in Paris, France, and a third in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And they are Gabriel Ojeda Segay, a poet and writer living in Chicago, author of three books of poetry, including most recently, Losing Miami, published by The Accomplices, 2019, which has been nominated for the Lambda Literary Award in Gay Poetry. Yay, Gabe, Lambda, wow. And whose fourth book, Madness, is forthcoming from Night Boat Books, who is also co-editor of a book of selected sketches of the artist Gustavo Ojeda, currently a doctoral student, not Gustavo, but Gabe, at the University of Chicago, where he is conducting a study of sexuality. And by Imad Majid, a poet and performance artist based in Colombo, Sri Lanka, a co-founder and sometime moderator of Poetry Palau. Did I pronounce that right, Imad? Yeah. Poetry Palau, one of Colombo's most active and consistent gathering of poets whose poems have been published in Freeze City, a journal of South Asian literature and elsewhere, as well as in uh, local small press chapbooks, Lime, Plain Tea, and elsewhere, whose visual poem exploring dress among the Sri Lankan Tamil Muslim community was presented at the Tamil Studies Symposium at York University in 2017, and who recently has ventured into the world of the Instapoet on Instagram at Imad Majid. Imad is two A's, Majid is two E's, and I have been reading those, they're cool. And by Irene Tora Mojadeño, a Spanish poet living in Paris, whose second book of poems is due out very soon and whose first book, The Conquest of Space, was published in 2016, a volume of mostly poems in Spanish, with a few in French and one, Sandra's Haiku, in English, about which there is an episode of Mod Po Minute available through YouTube, who is a Spanish language and literature teacher in French secondary schools and has served for several years as a community teaching assistant for the open online course on modern and contemporary poetry called Mod Po, and is currently working, I heard about this when I was visiting Paris, on a poetic promenade, a literary tour of Latin American writers who lived in and wrote about Paris. That's really exciting. Irene, how is that that tour going? Is it coming along? Yeah, well, now it's a bit stuck with all this situation, but I hope it will be, it will be ready for the summer and likely we'll be doing already visits. That's great. Next time in Paris, we're going on a poetic yeah. promenade. That's great. Gabe, congrats on the nomination and also on hey, the new book. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. If yeah. only to see you, you know. Well, this is good enough. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Gabe, uh, Madness. 
you know, usually your titles say a little more about, maybe this <laughs> You say in a word about madness in that context? Uh, yeah, well, I like got it from Roland Bart because I'm a parody of myself in certain ways. Uh, you know, he talks about the lover's madness. Uh, it's a book about mental health. It's a book about exilism. And it's kind of a funny little concept where it's a, the book is a fake selected poems for a fictional poet. Poet never existed. The poems never existed. The books never existed. But it's a selected poems of that person. So uh, nice. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a narrative in some ways. Did you use the word exilism earlier? Yeah, exilism, yeah. Yeah, exilism. So you're thinking of yourself as, although English is very uh, natural and na almost native to you, you're, you think of yourself as a kind of alien homeland, always exile, yeah? Well, I think, of, I think of myself as a child of exiles more than anything. So by being first gen, I'm like, I just have a whole other set of problems. But I've been writing a lot recently about exilism. Like, that's what... Losing Miami is a lot about, it's kind of like speculative exilism in right. terms of like uh, climate change. And the exile, we should say, is from the island of Cuba. Yes, Cuban and diaspora onto, exile. And onto a, a southern a peninsula that is more underwater potentially than Cuba, which is lifted up. <laughs> Cuba lifted up nicely from the Caribbean, but Florida, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. true. <laughs> Imad, so good to see you, Imad. How you are as you? Well. Yeah. I'm doing good. So lime plain tea. Tell us just for a second about lime plain tea. So lime plain tea was put together by this poet, Stefan Sebastian, who's a friend of mine. And um, basically his idea was, among my friends are these poets and why can't I bring them together in a little book? So he started this project, and since then there have been other publications by other poets doing a similar thing, curating these little books. And they sell them at this um, place called The Good Market in Colombo that happens every Saturday. So are you, are you able to continue the... You're very involved with the Colombo poetry community. Are you able yeah. to keep things going while you're um, locked down at home? So Poetry Pilau has had a mailing list for the longest time since it began. So there is activity there um, that's shifted sort of to the online. But yeah, there is a need to sort of create spaces online to uh, do that. Yeah. Right well, thank you all for, for, uh, for being part of this. Uh, the four of us today have gathered to talk about a poem by William Carlos Williams. And, you know, uh, Poem Talk, barely ever repeats a second poet. Uh, Ashbery was repeated. Uh, uh, Bernadette Mayer, I believe, has been repeated. Just a few. And Williams has been done twice before. This is the first time we've ever done a third. Uh, but we're going to be talking about a very well-known and, for the moment, appropriate uh, uh, first poem in the disjunctive manifesto-like non-sequential sequence called Spring and All, famous book published in Paris of 1923. Um, really, a, probably a response to the wasteland, even though he, Williams claimed to hate the wasteland. It's a very wastelandish thing. And a year later, you know. Um, so our poem is often called Spring and All, and is sometimes known by its first line, by the road to the contagious hospital. The Williams page at Penn Sound includes eight recordings of his performances of this poem. So it was a kind of standard of his readings. 
um, not, not all the readings, but many of them. Uh, for our discussion, we're going to hear the performance given at Harvard University on December 4th, 1951. And prior to the start of the poem, it turns out that at that moment we captured in the Penn Sound recording um, a, a brief introduction, an animated introductory thought that he has. So, which may or may not pertain to the poem he's about to read. It could pertain to the one he just read. I have no idea. Um, but it'll be fun to talk about. So, here now is William Carlos Williams in 1951 reading By the Road to the Contagious Hospital. Well, this is one that is uh, sometimes liked because it seems more regular than most. <coughs> this is, <laughs> this is uh, spring and all. Or really, it's best known as the road to the contagious hospital. Now, you notice what I said. There is no subject that the modern poem cannot approach. There is no selected material it's what you do with the work of art. It's what you put on the canvas and how you put it on that makes the picture. It's how the words fit in. Poems are not made of thoughts, beautiful thoughts. It's made of words, pigments put on. Here, there, made, actually. By the road to the contagious hospital, under the surge of the blue mottled clouds driven from the northeast, a cold wind beyond the waste of broad muddy fields brown with dried weeds standing and fallen patches of standing water the scattering of tall trees all along the road the reddish purplish forked upstanding twiggy stuff of bushes and small trees with dead brown leaves under them leafless vines lifeless in appearance sluggish Day's spring approaches. They enter the new world naked, cold, uncertain of all save that they enter. All about them the cold, familiar wind. Now the grass. Tomorrow the stiff curl of wild carrot leaf. One by one objects are defined. It quickens. Clarity, outline of leaf. But now the stark dignity of entrance. Still the profound change has come upon them. Rooted, they grip down and begin to awaken. Well, I would like to start by asking each of you, uh, Gabe, first, just to describe in the most basic terms what the scene is. There's, there's a specific scene. He's going somewhere and he is passing by something. Can you start, Gabe, with just an observation about that? Yeah, it seems like he's going uh, to a hospital, which like, because we know something about William seems like he's kind of going to work. Um, and he's passing by a kind of like dead uh, field, a sort of muddy field that's full of branches and twigs and the kind of remnants of winter moving into spring. So it's just right. like, yeah. That's a great start. Irene, would you add anything to that? What's the scene evoke for you? Yeah, there's like a lot of nature there. And at the same time, he's like, on the present moment, he's talking about what he's seeing, but also talking about what he's going to see. So there's like a present and future combined in the same image. Would you, Irene, would you consider this, uh, the language about what he sees to be descriptive, observational? Yeah, in, in appearance, he's 
very descriptive. There are a lot of, a lot of words, as he said, a lot of objects, a lot of mm, physical things we can, we can perceive. Mm -hmm. Iman, uh, any further thought on the scene, setting the scene? It's funny how the, the first line, by sets the yeah. scene and, as Gabe pointed out, points to where he's headed, but then, then there's no more mention of that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's, the poem kind of stops in the sense of the, whether he's moving. So I wonder if he's stopped and is still and looking out or moving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A uh, classic William strategy, right? There's this sense of dynamism and motion, but actually once you get that sense, it's not at all. Uh, it's actually almost imagist, mm -hmm. uh, which would be a throwback for him by 1923. Okay, so Gabe, the, if you put your thumb as a thought experiment, put, literally put your thumb over the first line, it's a different poem. It becomes, right. yeah, say something about what happens if we don't have that first line? Well, without it, it seems a bit like, and this might be why William says it, the poem seems more regular um, than some of his others. It feels like it follows this tradition of like pathetic fallacy of writing about the, the season change and what that like might signal for the human emotion, the, especially writing about winter as a kind of death and spring as a kind of new reawakening of life, the the like specific context of the hospital brings it into a particularly modern um, uh, moment, especially since we know the context in which Williams is writing this and the kind of uh, like just after World War I um, uh, uh, issues that are popping up during this time. That's great. Um, Irene, so let's, let's consider the hospital then. Uh, how does the fact that this is all occurring as he's on his way to a hospital. How does that possibly change the way we think about this early spring scene? It's really a kind of classic modernist non sequitur. Really, no, no traditional poet, no poet of the Victorian 19th century, let's say in English, would dare just throw in the hospital at the beginning and then not have anything connected. So, we're left to make those connections. Do you want to start trying to figure out how the hospital colors are thinking about this spring? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you're like forced to think about what's, what's the relationship with this hospital and this contagious hospital. Uh, well, I think there is something about life, what happens in hospitals and also in spring, about lives, uh, lives and death and all the death um, nature apparently death nature he's talking about but um, in the future uh, alive nature and i was thinking also about this contagious word because spring is something that kind of contagious too like uh -huh. well, Illness is spread, but also spring yeah. spreads a little widely. Yes. So, I really yeah. love that. You did a lot of work. Imad, we're going to turn to you. We did, you did a lot of work there. One thing you, well, let's start with the second thing you talked about, which is the, the metaphor of contagiousness, of the excitement about spring, rebirth. We get kind of excited, especially when you're an appetitious, let's just say randy person like William Carlos Williams. You know, spring is like you get yourself going. I think the phrase, the idiom in English is a, 
uh, the juices get flowing, right? And I think this is partly that, right? And Williams had this weird doctor thing where he would, he got off on, I wouldn't say he got off on contagion, but he got off on, you know, embracing people who were ill or dirty, or he just had this, there's a bit of um, a kind of macho version of Mother Teresa about him, you know, just wanting to hold on to people. And so he loved the dirty, scrappy crap. Um, so there, that's an interesting thing. Um, Imad, to you now, let's go further with this thing yeah. about why the doctor on the way to the contagious hospital, not a phrase we use anymore. Um, why, why would he say these things about spring? What connects? I think to me, um, it has to do with birth. Yes. But when you think of it as the contagious hospital, it's, um, I don't know, I would go further in extending the metaphor uh, that Irene gave of um, our sort of procreation and um, populating of the earth being <laughs> right. contagious to some sense. Um, but I think, yeah, as uh, Irene was saying, it's the hospital life and death um, and spring. Yeah. So, okay, Gabe, now we're going to push a little further on this because there's a contradiction in the doctoring. He's a baby doctor. He, he, uh, obstetrician, pediatrician. So he did a lot of delivering of babies. And this poem is famously about birth. Yeah. But there's a contradiction here, especially, uh, made aware. We are made aware of it in this time of worldwide global contagion, right? where he's going to a hospital where people are dying of a virus. Mm -hmm. Possibly this is a recollection of 1919, uh, 1918, which would be the Spanish flu, so-called. Sorry, I read mm -hmm. it. probably wasn't really Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, so death, he's going to surround himself with people who are dying, and yet it's a poem about birth. So he's got the wrong doctoring, no? A little bit, yeah. Um, I think like some of that tension is being played in the fact of maybe oh, like something that could be described with the word stillness, which I mean in two senses. The problem of this poem, or one of the things it's working through, is like how you enter a world you're already in. Um, this is not about like starting life, uh, but actually about life kind of reassembling. Um, because here what we're doing is like, he, he says these things are lifeless in appearance, but of course they aren't exactly lifeless in the sense that these same dead things are the matter that will make the living things. They are really the same plants. Um, and so it's not, it's not so much about birth, about entering the world anew and being like, what am I in now? What am I? But it's really about like kind of uh, discombobulating and recombobulating in a particular way, yeah. um, which is like where this contradiction becomes sort of interesting. Like it, he's describing it so much like a, like a fetal birth in humans, but it's so clearly not like that. And the fact that really all these materials are just still there. Um, and sometimes that's what's so kind of like unbearable about them. Yes. That's, that's really nice. Is anybody a gardener? No, no. City Paris, Columbo. Well, I'm a bit of a Philadelphia gardener, and I, I hear the distinction in what Gabe is talking about between the annual and the perennial, right? An annual is something you just clear the ground and you plant something new, and every year you have to do it. Um, that's a lot of, a lot of poetry is about the annual, 
And I think William's revolution here, his radical stance as a modernist is partly about the perennial. The, the really good things are the things that turn back toward life that are already there, right? And perennial is what people do when they make babies. And it's also, <laughs> and also death is not an annual, but a perennial, the circle of life and all. So let's play, let's do a lightning round, the four of us. Um, when I call on you, pick out a phrase or a word that speaks to this issue of renewal, rebirth, and also the idea that the early spring rather than the late spring, it's easy to love the late spring, but it's the early spring that's so hard to love because it's so muddy and ugly. So let's do that. Irene, lightning round, name a, name a phrase that helps us with that. Uh, lifeless in appearance, I think. Yeah. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, because it's like he's, he looks like he's so much expecting this spring. He knows he's going to come, but it's not yet there. Yeah. But you can feel it. But so, right. yeah, for me, I think this is like a. Right. Well, and don't, don't be fooled by appearances, right? There's mm -hmm. life there. Yeah. Iman, it's also such a, it's yeah. a great rhyme too, from leafless. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a great word, lifeless. There's no such thing as lifeless in a poem by William Carlos Williams. You know, <laughs> pieces of broken green glass are full of life. Yeah. yeah. And also can rhyme like a poem is supposed to do. Thank you, Gabe. Imad, a phrase that helps us with this? I'm really interested in the phrase, one by one, objects are defined. Yeah. The process he might be referring to, if I were to think of this as a poem that was written around the time of the World War, the idea of things being defined and outlined, the idea of um, orders and different ways in which um, these changes come in. That's really terrific. Does anybody want to take what Imad just said and connect William's intro to this poem about painting? Painting isn't just this thing you do that creates a scene. Painting is things put on here, there. It's like dabs of paint, right? Can you connect anybody what Imad just said to that? Gabe, take a stab at that. What does it have to no, do? No, I, I, I don't have it actually. I think you should do it, Al. Okay, I will. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> one by one, objects are defined. This is what light is. This is photography. Photography and painting are all about light one by one and so the sun shines a little longer every day and this little piece of grass here and this crocus comes up and and things get defined every reality is what's defined and so is life one by one objects are defined it quickens what quickens this is the art of spring spring and all clarity outline of leaf he's drawing he's sketching Right, and he believes that nature sketches. Nature is like a modernist painting. I think he's saying. I was thinking that it's not only like images. It's like even the poem is made. We have the impression it's made like one by one, every word or every object. Somehow it's the same, the same way of creating the poem yeah. or the image. Finally, yeah. is defining one by one. Yeah, and there's also a bit of a Hippocratic oath there in the one by one. I mean, you, doctors must save, must try to save every patient one by one, right? And that's about atomistic or focused attention, mm. which is stark dignity, right? Mm. There's something about the dignity of an ill person, a person with a virus, something 
tremendous. I've been rereading Camus' The Plague. I don't recommend that, by the way. <laughs> and the, doc, the two doctors we get to know, they're, they're all about seeing the stark dignity of the people who are getting sick, starting with the concierges who are getting rid of the rats. And one imagines that people in a contagious hospital cannot afford, they don't have the privilege of being taken care of at home. They're stuffed in a place where the disease spreads further. By the road to the contagious hospital, under the surge of the blue mottled clouds driven from the northeast, a cold wind. Beyond the waste of broad muddy fields, brown with dried weeds, standing and fallen. Patches of standing water, the scattering of tall trees. All along the road, the reddish, purplish, forked, upstanding twiggy stuff of bushes and small trees with dead brown leaves under them, leafless vines, lifeless in appearance, sluggish, dead spring approaches. Okay, so let's go back to the contagious hospital and let's wing it a little bit. This is a poem and this is a poem talk that's obviously been produced. We could have waited till we all got back into the studio, although Imad, it would be and I ran a long trip for you to get to the studio, so I'm glad we're doing this. We could have waited for another episode. We have a bunch of episodes in the can that we could have put forward, but we're, we're interrupting the normal programming to put this in there uh, for this particular month in which we're all either uh, anxious or fearful and certainly shut out from the early spring. Although, Imad, granted, early spring has moved quickly into summer where you are, but I think in Chicago and Paris and Philadelphia, the spring is just doing what it does, almost absent of us. So I invite all three of you to think, to, to be thoughtful about this. This idea that he introduces, this poem that is perfect for this moment in our lives, suggests what to you? Have you re, Gabe, have you reread this poem a little differently because of the COVID-19? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think I... I think what might be helpful is to zoom in a little bit more on stark dignity as a phrase. Um, it, 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 it's quite a weird combination actually, but it seems so obvious, but like stark as a word means kind of bare, but bold in a particular way. It, it, it shows itself by how bare it is. And dignity is a weird word for us in English because though it means to have honor, to have respect, it's often used to signal somebody who retains honor once defeated. So at least I have my dignity is a common phrase, you know, that I, I stood up for something while I was kind of bashed down. And it's an interesting kind of parallel to the standing water that like maps out this, this scene. Uh, this is a scene, as I was saying, like at, at the beginning, that is muddy, dead, still kind of gross water that's kind of going through its motions of becoming a, a life, a more life producing area. But really it's a, it's a poem about like what is so difficult about remaining in life and reentering in life through particular moments. Um, and I think like obvious, the obvious kind of political context of this and the World War I, the Spanish influenza, the kind of work that Williams does, really highlights the, the, the pathetic fallacy that's going on here, which is saying like this kind of like way we die and re-enter very unspectacularly, not without like no fanfare, but simply like by duration. It's, it's kind, I mean, it's humanist, if not at least 
a little bit hopeful. Mm. That's beautiful. More than a little hopeful, I, I'm going to argue when I get to my thoughts on this, more than a little hopeful because um, change means, I mean, beauty depends on the possibility of death. So right. Keith said, and I think we all believe, if things were changeless, then there wouldn't be beauty. And that is the profound change, right? I mean, this poem, all, all poems we talk about are uh, metapoems, it seems. This is a poem about what kind of art we prefer in a time of mass death, not just mm. the virus, but the war itself. Yeah. Okay, Imad, how has this poem appeared to you in this time of virus pandemic? To me, it's been fascinating because um, at home, the only other person is my brother-in-law who uh, travels to the hospital um, and often tells me about all the checkpoints that he has to go through because it's like, you know, an urban landscape. Um, but yeah, the poem to me, uh, it's interesting to think of the way things have slowed down right now, sluggish and dazed. Um, and eventually we're going to have to sort of come out of this with renewed sort of spirit, I guess. Um, yeah, going back to the idea of um, Gabe's with the stark dignity of entrance, to me, that is also fascinating to sort of um, think of what it's going to be like get, once we're out of this and re-entering. A new world naked, right? Mm. That is the hope. It's probably a silly hope, but that's the hope, I think. Crisis leads to profound change. But Irene, what are your thoughts about uh, the, our virus and this virus? Yeah, I was thinking that we are literally in the first line of, line of the poem. We are, well, maybe not by the road, but we are by the window with all these contagious hospital situation in our mm, our lives. And then there's the rest of the poem happening on the other side of the window. And we are really now looking at that and looking at that slow spring, at least in, in Paris, we have we have seen during this this lockdown months, we have already seen all these little changes and well it, if you're lucky and you have some nature near your window, window, you can really see what is happening. And yeah, I think it's like so accurate and so so real at this time that we are in this situation, but observing another situation, which is absolutely what is described. What a keen observation, Irene, about the way the poem is constructed. I hadn't thought of this, but this is a classic Williams move. Williams is often looking at other people out of windows. Sometimes he's outside looking in, but we won't go there. Um, and he uses prepositions to set to make it clear, although not so uh, not so explicitly, but to make it clear that, um, as you say, he's looking through a window at the world. So by the road to the contagious hospital. So that would seem um, alongside the ant the the uh, shoulders of the outsides of the road, by the road, not on the road under the sky, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to all along the road. And it's pretty clear that he is inside a car, whether he has his windows open or not, he is protected by his vehicle. And mm -hmm. he is seeing this 
bombed out landscape come back to life. But he's not out in it. He's not tromping around in the muddy, the muddy puddles. He's on his way somewhere. And mm-hmm. he would typically write his poems on a prescription pad, mm-hmm. sitting to the right on the bench seat of the big sedan that he had. Uh, especially at this point, he had this big car with a bench seat in the front and the prescription pad. And he dangerously would write some of these poems in phrases that he wrote on the pads as he was looking out the window. Um, well, uh, I want to invite a round of final thoughts on this, and this would be a chance for you to say one more thing about something in the poem, a phrase or an idea that you meant to talk about but didn't have a chance yet. Um, and then I, I have one that kind of combines the last idea, this thing about our own virus in the poem. But So we'll go to Gabe first. What, what thought do you have that you didn't get a chance to talk about yet? I think um, one of the last lines, still the profound change has come upon them. Um, it ends with rooted, they grip down and begin to awaken. But I want to mention like the, the kind of strangeness of that, that phrasing. One, like we're not given a reason to believe that it's a profound change by, the, by at least the, the things we're looking at. Because um, for all intents and purposes, nothing has really changed yet. This is very much about a transitional moment in the seasons and about the end of winter, about the beginning of spring. There's a movement into life that hasn't yet happened, but uh, Williams is like making sure to emphasize and in this grammar that the change has come upon them. These things have already happened. The, the temporality here is interesting. I mean, Williams is saying and kind of looking forward to a life that will be there. We're not talking about flowers. We're not talking about sunshine. We're talking about vines without leaves but he's saying still that change has come upon them um and and what is profound about it is its ability to be there before it's seen the fact that these kinds of changes are encoded into the material into the into the life itself is like it is profound in, in, in a real sense yeah two two quick thoughts on that final thought gabe i think that's great um one is that uh, spring life has already started underground we just don't see it yet Right, so life will not be stopped. It's very hard. Here at my house, we had a construction project that pretty much wiped out my garden. And I despaired, especially now that it's hard to go get plants. I despaired of seeing it. But the tulips found their way up and the irises have just found their spot. They just are not going to be, and the mint, holy cow, you know, they're like, the other thought I had on your thought, Gabe, is the use of the word still right in front of that, still as if he's arguing, right? But also has come upon them might refer to the fact that the poem is so dynamic that by the time you get to it, spring is a little further on. Yeah. You know, he's, there's a certain dynamism in interactivity or interanimation, interanimation uh, in this poem. He, he's so, such a modernist ego that he actually thought that if he kept writing poems about this, the spring would come on faster. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. Imad, your final thought? Um, the last phrase really rooted, they grip down and begin to awaken. Um, I'm really fascinated to see what is going to, um, come about just, as you said, it's happening and we're not necessarily seeing it, but eventually, um, we will start to see, um, what comes with, uh, a metaphoric spring after this. Yeah. And not to be too happy too happy 
uh, mm. or, or silly. But, you know, that first couple of days when it seems clear that we can emerge, mm. uh, it, you know, it's bound to be with the pathetic fallacy in full operation. It's bound to be a sunny, warm day with a surge of blue mottled clouds. And, yep. uh, you know, we're going to notice, I think the phrase is, um, smell the flowers. We'll probably notice a little more for once, <laughs> for once. Irene, final thought? Well, you already said something, but I think there's all the time like this contrast or this ambiguity with, within like life and death and health and illness. But not only that, it's not that obvious. There is this contrast and living together at the same time of the beauty and the, and the rough and the difficult. And I don't know, I think it's like really in the poem. Like you have both. And yes. Because there's one probably you have the other or because you can look at one, you can also look at the other. Yeah. Um, Irene, what is your thought on this question we talked about a few minutes ago about Re, re, redefining beauty, redefining what we consider to be beautiful in nature. Um, I'll give you a phrase and maybe you can add a thought to it. The stiff curl of the wild carrot leaf. First of all, wild carrots, I don't know if you've ever tried them. You know, they're pretty bitter. I mean, they are <laughs> carrots. They are what carrots used to be before we cultivated them. But I love the stiff curl. There's almost something 1920s-ish, electric, curly, get ready for the party, stiff <laughs> curl about it, right? And, and yet it's, it's not really beautiful, the stiff curl of the wild, wild carrot, but it is lovely. Um, can you say something about how this poem forces us to change our view of what's beautiful and what's not? Well, I would say that in poetry, Usually beauty is defined by the the eye of the poet. Yeah. So I mean, why wouldn't be beauty in this core of wild carrot leaf if the poet is already looking at it as, as a beautiful right. thing and presenting it like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. Whatever Williams looks at is going to be beautiful because, you know, that's, yeah. his, that's the way he projects. Yeah. Um, well, my final thought uh, is, uh, oddly enough, it begins with a book about uh, Holocaust survival. Uh, my former teacher, Terence Dupre, studied the um, memoirs of um, a couple of hundred Holocaust survivors. They're their description of their time in the death camps, and also some, uh, some survivors of the Russian gulags. And um, counterintuitively, Terence Dupre's thesis of this book, which is very disputable, is that we find in almost every memoir of surviving a turn toward life, a turn toward life. Not that it's successful, that turn toward life, because often in a uh, life in extremis, you get snuffed out just when you think, you know, you're turning toward life. But it's the turn toward life that seems for him to be requisite for survival, for human survival. Um, and I think there's a turn toward life in this poem. Uh, and I think that is why it's a respond to the response to the wasteland, which is a post-World War 
one poem that is not at all a turn toward life. It's this, to me, I'm a critic of Eliot, an ex, the exploitation of the fragment, of the fragmentation that technology, military technology, and otherwise, and medicine enabled us to do in poetry. So it was all the thing, all the rage. Um, and Williams hated that. So he writes, a, <clears throat> excuse me, Spring and All as a book is kind of a wasteland, but it's a wasteland that's constantly turning back toward life. And this is essentially the title poem in which we enter with stark dignity, we enter the world naked, we start all over again uncertain. The only thing we're certain of is that we enter, is that we do enter. Um, and a line in Terence Dupre's book that always gets me is uh, this, all things human take time. All things human take time. It's very difficult to see the human when you're still underground trying to run those shoots up into the sun. Um, you know you're alive, but you have no way of proving it, of demonstrating it, of, of even emitting the, the uh, stiff curl. And all things human take time. If we wait long enough, we will see the crocuses come up, the cherry blossoms come out, and so forth. And there's a, there's a pathetic fallacy here about what will happen to the people in the contagious hospital if they survive. It will be because they turn toward life, because we are plants and animals. <laughs> we are very much like that, and spring will come. It's just really hard to stop it. Well, okay, so we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for all of us to spread wide. Oh, I get to do this because it's kind of a video for some folks. Spread wide our narrow hands. See my narrow hands? Um, to gather a little something, something poetically or literarily good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or in the art world. So I think you guys are prepared to recommend something. So Imad, what would you recommend? So there's a collective of Sri Lankan artists um, called The Packet. They started out working on a deconstructed book with um, artists working in various genres, including poetry. And you can follow them on Instagram at the underscore packet. Um, yeah. Packet, P-A-C-K-E-T. Yeah, the underscore packet. And um, yeah, there's some really fascinating work in there that you can go check out. That's great. And, and we connected, you and I, back in maybe 2013 or 2012 through Modpo. 2013. 2013. And yeah. you, you said that the, uh, that the <clears throat> English, English language poetry and art scene in Colombo is very vibrant, it's a bit minoritarian, but very, very vibrant. Yes. And how is that all going? It's going good. Um, there are quite a few regular events that are happening and people coming together, various little scenes um, across such a tiny city. So that's nice to see. Um, and there are people self-publishing their poetry and getting it out there. So it's good. That's great. And for, for uh, folks in Sri Lanka who are listening to this or seeing this, would you repeat your own Instagram because you're an Insta poet? Yeah, um, it's at I-M-A-A-D-M-A-J-E-E-D, Imad Majid. Fantastic. Irene, uh, gather some paradise for us, please. Well, I'm afraid there's no such a big poetry scene in Paris. 
but I, I do love this collective, <laughs> these people named Lavage Bleu, uh, which is like a group of poets working and writing by the canal, and you already know them, <laughs> some of them, and they are, well, some Latin American poets writing and creating books, making books, and well, trying to, trying to spread the Spanish and Latin American poetry here in Paris. When I was visiting, my wife and I, you took us to meet some Latin American Parisian poets. Where was exactly. that place? That's the place, that's the place. That's the place you're talking about, right? Exactly, that's the place. There was just one person or a couple of people, I guess, when when you were there. We met a very distinguished, I want to say, Uruguayan poet, but Colombian. Yeah, and uh, Colombian, I guess. (laughs) And yeah, well, there's like a, there's a nice place and they have like a lot of, well, a lot of activities, a lot of poetry readings, a lot of exhibitions, so. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, it's, it, it strikes me as very difficult to describe for people where to find that, but do you want to at least say what region it's in? Because I, I was lost when you took us there. Yeah, well, it's, it's difficult to find <laughs> in the, in the, the, real, in the real world. But it's you can a find them. sheds. Exactly. It's like somewhere in the city, quite hidden, like the little alternative scene of Paris. That yeah. they are they are on Facebook, so you can find them probably uh, easily on Facebook. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Gabe. Gather some paradise. Yeah, I have I have two little things. One, I just I think there's um, uh, reason to celebrate how like uh, profoundly creative people have been during this time with like bringing poetry and po- poetics related stuff to people. Um, a lot of poets sort of telegramming their own things out into the world, a lot of people sharing work of others or scanning their books and sending them to people, sharing PDFs. So I think that's just like really something to be commended. And also to celebrate a kind of old world thing, uh, there is uh, a new Meme Bersenberger book and I'm talking a physical wow. book here. Um, and it's really beautiful. Is that stars it, book? Yeah, it's called a, a Treatise on Stars. Um, and uh, for those who don't really know Bersenberg's work, it's like, imagine something really, really lovely, but also like deeply hardcore philosophical, like phenomenological, analytic. It's like so precise, yet so incredibly like kind. Um, her own description of the book just says, my book describes how communicating with star beings can teach us to continue our world through love and grace, communal grace. So, you know, there's that. I think it's great. May May to a T, really great. I'm so glad that you recommended it. Um, I want to gather some paradise. Um, This is called Dictionary Poetics. The subtitle is Toward a Radical Lexicography. It's a brand new book by Craig Dworkin. And each chapter takes, matches a dictionary and a poet, right? So, for instance, chapter one is Funkin' Wagnall's Practical Standard Dictionary of the English Language, matched with Louis Zukofsky, Louis Zukofsky, his piece, Thanks to the Dictionary. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary gets matched with George Oppen's Discrete Series. That's a feat. 
And just to give another example, um, Juba to Jive, the Dictionary of African American Slang, and fairly obviously, if you know her work, that matches with Harriet Mullins' um, Muse and Drudge. So it's Craig Dworkin's Dictionary Poetics. Well, uh, that's all the New World Naked we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, to my spread out guests, Gabriel Ojeda Segay in Chicago, Imad Majid in Colombo, and Irene Tora Mohadeno in Paris, and to Poem Talks director, engineer, and emergent expert, Zoomist, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Erica Hunt, Billy Joe Harris, Tyrone Williams, and Alden Nielsen join me in a discussion of Erica Hunt's poem, Should You Find Me? This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.